0: If you have a Bible, if you would, open it with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 1,075. 1,075. If you're new to the Bible, the chapters are the large numbers and the verses are the small numbers. That's really easy this week because that's right at the beginning of the book uh, there. We're going to take a break from our series that Kevin's been doing in John, and we'll do this for a little bit, at least through the uh, marriage conference in in March. And so this morning we're going to begin to to look at 1 Peter. Before we do, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we pray that you would open your word to us. We pray that you would help us to hear it, to receive it, to believe it, and to act on it. Father, we pray that you'd help me to faithfully preach it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, anybody who's traveled to another country or you've just been around people from another culture, you know what it's like to feel out of place. Whether it's a funny story where you completely messed up the entire cultural exchange or if you just remember uh, the famed uh, peace sign that uh, Chamberlain gave, or, um, well, I'm blinking, Churchill, sorry, not Chamberlain, that Churchill gave uh, to the newspaper to his chagrin later. People especially who are second-generation immigrants, or if you are a third-culture child, as they say, really tend to find themselves caught in the crosshairs of two different cultures and often wondering, well, where where is it that I belong? In a lot of ways, that is what it's like to live as a Christian in this world. We were born here. We grew up here. We speak the language. We can move within the culture. And yet, if you belong to Christ, you now belong to another place, another country, another kingdom with a different culture and a different language and a different way of living. And those two conflict with each other all the time. Well, that's what the church that Peter was writing to was dealing with. And he writes to them to encourage them. And I want you to see his purpose in chapter 5, the very end of the letter, verse 12. So flip over there, if you would, and just look at how he closes the book. And he tells you what he, the main things he wants us to hear all the way through. He's going to say a lot. But what is he, what's his goal? He says, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So that's what Peter wants us to do. And that's what we need to hear each week as we think about the things that Peter exhorts us to. Now to do that, in our verses here, the first two verses of the, of the letter... Peter lays a foundation for encouragement, and that foundation has to do with Christian identity. Our identity involves two things. It involves explaining our experience. So as we we live in this life and we're conflicted by the two cultures' intention, how are we to understand this feeling? But also in naming our true status— So he's going to explain to us our experience. He's going to name our true status. Peter is writing to encourage the church by reminding us of our true identity in Jesus. And we need to hear this just as they needed to hear it because their status in society had been diminished because they were following Jesus. But the truth is that they needed to grasp is that their status in God had actually been elevated. Diminished in society, but elevated with God. Christian, the way the world sees you and will treat you for following Jesus isn't true of God's view of you. The way the world will look at you is not at all the way that God will look at you. If you take notes, one thing to drive home and get fixed in our hearts today is that we must be strengthened in life by your standing with God. Be strengthened in life by your standing with God. Now, two ways he's going to accomplish this. He's going to tell us first to embrace outsider status in the world. That's verse 1. We have to embrace outsider status in the world. And number two, which is verse two, take comfort in insider status to God. Take comfort to insider status to God. Let's think about embracing outsider status in the world. Look again at verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontius Galatia, Cappadocia. Asia and Bithynia, chosen. Notice how he identifies himself first. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. What Peter writes is on behalf of Jesus himself. We've been thinking about this downstairs in the equipping class that we've been doing through the fall about the doctrine of the word of God. And how the apostles are ambassadors of Jesus, and they're not just any ambassadors, but they're eyewitness testimonies. They are the ones that walked with Jesus, heard him teach in person, saw him die and raised from the dead, and then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, were sent into the world to speak His words authoritatively to the world. It is a unique office. And because of that, you'll notice as you go through the the New Testament, you'll see qualifications of elders, pastors, bishops, all the same office. And you'll see qualifications of deacons, two offices. But you don't see further qualifications for apostles because that office was unique to those eyewitnesses at that time. Peter is one of those apostles. Now, the reason that matters is a few things. Because what Peter says, he says from God. So that's different than me telling you, well, here's what I think about you. I want you to be encouraged because here's the qualities I see about you that I want to build you up in. This is Peter describing by the Holy Spirit the divine message from God himself to us. So what Peter writes about us is true of us from God. Now, just a side note, because of the reality of the office of apostle, when you hear or see someone today in a church taking the title of apostle for themselves, you should, you should see a red flag go up. Or at least in your mind or in your heart, a red flag should be called, or I don't know about soccer, I really didn't watch much of it, but I think that's bad if you get a red card, right? Those things should be pulled because there are no apostles today. The apostles lived at this time and they wrote these books for us. So just a helpful thing as you go through if you have friends uh, that bring things up like that. Now, it's important because here, here's Peter. And the reason I say all this is because I want you to feel the impact of the words that Peter writes as the words of God. When you see the way he identifies his readers, this is how Jesus identifies them. And he gives them the label, Christians are given by Jesus. So he's labeling us. Now, normally we try to avoid labels. We feel like they box us into stereotypes that we may or may not like or may or may not want for ourselves. But labels are also really helpful to know who someone is, and we do it all the time. Even though we try to resist labels, we label ourselves. So we're all labeled by something, mom, dad, student, teacher, coach, rich, poor, all kinds of labels, and they're helpful. They tell you something about the person that you're talking to. Where we're from or where we live says something, too. So we ask each other, well, where'd you grow up? Or, Where where, where are you from? These days, people spend a lot of time working on how they're viewed, and it matters a lot to everybody. So people can be really sensitive to how they're labeled. And, of course, we get that. We all understand that in some way because we want some control over how people think about us. We don't want people to mislabel us. That's the problem, right? Have you ever thought about why you do that? Have you ever stopped to ask, well, why do I care so much? what the perception of me is? Or if somebody puts me in a certain box and not in another one, and why do I want to be in that box and not in this one? What is it in your heart that's driving that? That's an important question to ask yourself, especially when it comes to applying what Peter wants us to hear from this. Now, teenagers, especially. I'm going to say something to you, but The reality is, is that old and young deal with this. It's just as a teen, you might feel it in a more powerful way at times, or at least maybe you'll admit it. I know you feel this. I know you feel the pressure to conform to what peers want you to be. So you want that label. Or what's out is a label you definitely don't want. And so you naturally want your peers to like you. The bad news is is that doesn't really go away. You grow up a little bit. You get more comfortable in who you are. But it doesn't entirely go away. Because everybody wants to be included. But what you might not realize is that if you live that way, the perception of what others want you to be will control you. You will ultimately live for them. You will go to school and think, What do they want me to be? How do they want me to talk? Is it okay to laugh this way? How do they want me to dress? Now, you have to be careful. People will tell you, be yourself. And they aren't wrong. So one of the answers against that is be you. And so I don't want to not say that. You should be who God made you to be. You are beautiful the way God made you, regardless of what your peers think about you. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you actually want a higher standard than that. You want to be who Jesus wants you to be. So not only who God made you to be, but who God wants you to be. You want the label Jesus gives. And it's really important that you're anchored by what God says about you in Jesus before you ever take on any other identity or label. That's the starting point for all of life. And if you can start your life right now in that direction... You're you're in a much better footing than many of us were at that point. So how does Peter label his audience? Well, verse 1, he says, To those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad. If you're in Jesus, you've been chosen by God. If you're in Jesus, you've been chosen by God. That's your new identity. That's your label. And it conveys your status with God. Chosen by God. That's powerful. Now we'll think about this in just a minute when we think about embracing or being comforted by the status that God gives us. But notice how that status brings with it an experience of living in the world that can feel like living in a foreign country. Do you see the other description there? He says those chosen... Living as exiles, dispersed. An exile is the Greek equivalent to an illegal alien in America. Or a temporary resident. Someone who's just passing through. Maybe somebody who's a migrant worker, who's traveled to another country and they're working there for a season, but they never intend to stay. They're not at home. Everybody knows they're not at home. You know you're not at home. And you're, you're counting the days down until you pass on to back to where you came from. It's the label of someone who ain't from around here. This description has some irony to it, though. You remember Peter is Jewish by birth, Peter was a Jew. And for the Jew, after Babylon captured Jerusalem, some of what we read about from Jeremiah 29, they were dispersed throughout the world. Some were in Egypt. Others were in Mesopotamia and Babylon. Eventually, they were scattered all over the Roman Empire. So, at the time of Peter's writing, there's a Jewish community in the known world all over the place, and synagogues had been established. They had been scattered through all the events of history and dispersed throughout the world. They were known as the diaspora of the Jewish people. But Peter isn't writing to Jewish Christians, these are Gentile Christians. And he's using the Jewish phrase dispersed or the diaspora to apply it to the Gentile Christians. And you can see the way he addresses them in this way in verse 14. If you just look at verse 14 in chapter 1, you can see where this is coming from. He writes there, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. When he refers to their former ignorance, he's referring to the way they didn't know God's law. They didn't know what God had said because they didn't have the law of Moses. They weren't Jews. Or in verse 18 of the same chapter, notice how he says there, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors. This is not the way Jews spoke of themselves. They were very proud of their ancestry. They were very proud of the fact that they had Abraham and Moses and their family were the ones that received the revelation of Yahweh in the earth. So these are Gentile Christians. When Peter says that they are exiles dispersed then, he's metaphorically using the Jewish experience of being scattered away from their homeland in Jerusalem, and he's applying it to Gentile believers, new Gentile believers. The Gentile believers are like scattered, dispersed people of God. And it evokes the hope and promise God made to Israel to gather them to himself. One of those was there in Jeremiah. You get hints of that. But listen to Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 4. Even if your exiles are at the farthest horizon, I will gather you and bring you back from there. Or Isaiah 56.8. This is the declaration that the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel says... I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. To be a dispersed person of God is both to describe your experience in the world. You're not at home. To be a Jew dispersed was someone who wasn't in Jerusalem, where the temple was, where God met with Israel, where the sacrifices took place, and where all that God had revealed was visibly seen and experienced. To be a scattered Christian is to be a citizen of heaven who's also not at home. We're not at the heavenly Jerusalem. We're not at home. And that's what he's capturing with this phrase. Now, the irony comes in when you realize is that the places that he names are actually not foreign countries, though. The the provinces that he names here are actually these Christians' hometowns. Look at it again. Notice, he says, scattered, dispersed abroad. Now, he's writing from Rome. So, from where he's, he's sitting, they're abroad. But, look, in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, you know all those maps in the back of your Bible that you may or may not look at that often? If you go back there and you just look at Asia Minor, you'll see most of these places named there because this is a 300-square-mile area of Asia Minor. What is now, at least part of it, is, is modern Turkey. These, these Christians that he's writing to are not dispersed from their hometowns. They're living in their hometowns. And yet they're like dispersed people. They're exiles in their own streets. Exiles at their own workplace. Exiles in their families. They're exiles in the public square. They're exiles from politics. They're living in the place they grew up, but they're no longer at home. When they began to follow Jesus, something happened. They became alienated to the world they grew up in. And this is even more uh, uh, potent in their day because everything in their society involved the political worship of their gods. Whether it was their uh, guild meetings, if they worked a trade and they gathered and the guild meetings were often held in the pagan temples... And so you can imagine as a Christian, and maybe you're a carpenter or a, or a, 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 stone, a stone smith of some kind, and your guild is always met in the temple of Dionysus. And now as a Christian, you're conflicted. And you're asking, hey, can we, can we move the meeting? Can, can we do it in another location? Or you're there at a dinner party with your friends, and they tell you, we just got this meat from the temple. Come worship with us. And you say, I can't, I can't come to that party you see, if you didn't think you were worshiping, I could eat that meat with you. But because you actually think you're worshiping, I'm afraid I'm going to have to hold back. Or as they looked at their families and they said, we believe in only one God now. His name is Jesus, the resurrected Messiah of the Jews. And they said, how could you betray us? How could you betray Rome? How, how, could, you, how, how could you become like a, like a Gaul or a, or a barbarian or, or a Jew? They became outsiders. Because they followed Jesus, Nabil Karish was raised a Muslim before God intervened in his life to lead him to faith in Jesus. And as he was on his journey, he tells the story in his in his biography, his autobiography of himself uh, seeking Allah, finding Jesus, and all through the the, the 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 series of events and things that God was leading him to understand. And as he did research and began to read and and pray and Ask God for the truth. All along the way, as he began to realize that Jesus is the truth, it began to set in on him how he was going to have to tell his family, how he was going to have to face his mom and his dad, and the fear of what was going to happen. And towards the end of his journey, he agonized over how his family would respond. And eventually, though, he told his mother and his father with tears, both in his face and their faces, His father said to him, Today I feel as if my backbone has been ripped out from the inside of me. He loved his father. His mother asked, Why have you betrayed me? She said, I raised you, and this is what you do to me? And when he and his wife were married, no one in his family attended besides a few cousins and an uncle. He became a stranger in his own family, not because he hurt or harmed Or or wanted to disassociate himself from his mother and father, but because he knew he must follow Jesus, he became an exile in his home. Some of you have experienced this very thing as you began to follow the Lord. You found people distance themselves from you. Perhaps you experienced this in class at school. Friends have hung up on you as you told them, "I plan to follow Jesus." Family has asked you, well, how can you betray us? Why would you go with them? Invitations have been held back you 've been accused of silly things. they say well, you 've changed you 're not the same, and at work you 've been quietly labeled as an enemy you 're a bigot now. Some have had family members tell you that you aren 't welcome anymore or We can't have a relationship with anybody or you can't know your niece until you affirm the lifestyle that we choose and that we affirm. Listen, Christian, if that's you, this is the experience of being an exile. That's what it can mean. And for some, it will mean to follow Jesus in a world gone mad living for the one who made the world makes you an outsider to this world. Jesus had that experience. He was the one who made all people. And it says the the one who made them came and his own did not receive him. That's how Jesus lived. Remember how Paul put it in Philippians 3.20? He says, but your citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, it hates you. But I chose you out of the world. You see, there's a tension every Christian will feel. Whether it's intense persecution and extreme alienation, or it's just... The the awareness that if you were to explain exactly how you feel on this matter or exactly what God says, you know you'd be run out of the room. It's the tension between the world we grew up in, our friends and family we love, and want to know Jesus, and the citizenship that we now have in heaven. It changes you. And so before we say anything else, Christian, if you experience this, I just want to encourage you this morning to to realize that that experience is right. Now, your first experience of it may feel like, why is this happening? Uh, It shouldn't be this way, and it shouldn't. But it is the way it is until Jesus comes back. It's right. That's why we have to embrace that identity. Christian, God wants you to realize this reality, and This is what it means to live as a Christian, to live as a temporary resident in a foreign country. You thought you were American or something else if you didn't grow up in America, but you found out I'm Christian. I belong to that country, that nation. And the accent of our voice should start to sound like that country. And the deeds we do and the clothes we wear, the garb that we uh, adorn ourselves with looks like a foreign country. Think African garb in Dayton, Tennessee. It stands out and it should stand out. I'm afraid that some of our hindrances to following Jesus are related to wanting to keep on being at home here when we really just can't do that. As long as you fight to be embraced by a society that doesn't want to embrace your Lord, you will struggle. You're going to feel alienated both from the world and the church if you do this. So, so, so recognize the danger. If, if you try to straddle, if you try to say, well, if, if I can just maintain status in the world, then it won't be that bad. People won't think that bad of me and perhaps not bad of Jesus. But I do want to follow Jesus because I believe it and I know it's the truth. If you try to straddle that, you're going to find yourself alienated in the world and you're going to be alienated in the church. Not because we're going to try to alienate you, but because the culture of Christ is intention with the culture of the world. And so so you're going to find yourself in between and yet another culture. <laughs> it's better just to be all in with Jesus. Go to him outside the camp the writer of Hebrews says let us let us take on that shame and go out there with him. The reason is that to be at home in the world is to be against Jesus. But to be at home with Jesus is to be against the culture of this world. Not because we want to fight the culture, but because following Jesus puts, it, puts us at odds with it. So it's just not possible to have your foot in both worlds. And that's why John wrote that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You might not think of it that way. You might think of it as just trying to make things palatable or, or just get along in the world. I, I, I'm, you know, I don't know how many people are conscientiously thinking, well, I just really want to be friends with the world. But because the world hates God and does not want him ruling over us. Well, if you're friends with the world, you become God's enemy. A lot of churches and Christians spend their efforts to accommodate the message or the offensiveness of the gospel and sort of tone it down. But that just makes us exiles in the church. Some of us are struggling with being a Christian because you don't want to be a stranger in the world. Perhaps God is telling you today that you, you need to embrace outsider status when it comes to society. I don't know what you're wrestling with. I don't know what it's like for you at work. Can I just encourage you just to, just to own it? Just to say, yeah, that's me. We, we can work hard after that to try and explain ourselves, to show love, to show kindness, to, to, to repay uh, good for evil. We can do all of that. But Jesus told us they're going to misunderstand us. And they're going to they're gonna say all kinds of things about us falsely for his name's sake. It, it's going to happen. So let's own that. The sooner we do, the more useful we are to the world. And actually, it's from that embrace that you will be the most loving and useful in society. Now, if you're here and you're wrestling with what it would mean to follow Jesus, you might hear all of this and say, well, I don't know. Well, let me just say to you that you should follow Jesus. You should follow Jesus. And some of the reasons why are going to be laid out as we keep going. But if for no other reason, because it's the truth. Jesus came and he gave his life as a substitute to die for sinners so that those who are, who are at war with God, who are God's enemies, would become his friends. Jesus died to take on your sin so that if you would turn to him, you would receive his righteousness and in the place of your sin, be accepted by God. God wants to be your friend. Jesus is a friend of all sinners who turn and come to him. That's why you should follow him. And you don't get that anywhere else. Your sin will not be handled in any other way before God except judgment on you or judgment on Jesus. And the way you escape the judgment on you is you take what Jesus offers in the judgment on him. Now to do that, you have to come out of the world and live as an exile. God is calling you out of the world. He's saying, come out from among them and join me and join my people. That's what Jesus is saying to you. But when you do, you'll be a citizen of heaven. You you won't have no family. You won't have no culture. You'll become a citizen of another kingdom. You'll become like a homeless man in in the world. But in truth, you'll become very rich in Christ. So Christian, we should embrace outsider status in the world. But we should also take comfort in insider status to God. That's what verse 2 turns us towards. Look at verse 2. The last word in the um, CSB picks up chosen again to remind us what he's talking about. And then verse 2 says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. The world's view of Christians goes up and down uh, as time progresses. Aaron Wren helpfully noted last year in in a useful article how in America... We've experienced a transition from what was known as sort of a positive perception or a positive world from the beginning of America until around 1993. Around 1993, things changed and we moved into what, what he labels as neutral world. Where in, in culture, in society, Christ, Christians were no longer thought of positive but kind of like, eh, we're not sure. We're not sure if Christianity is good or not. To where sometime around... 2014 we moved into what's now what he's now labeling a negative world. We're pretty convinced Christians are bad. We're pretty convinced that the message of Jesus is not good, at least the one in the Bible. That swiftness is where we've all felt so much impact in the last 10 years. And anybody in this room knows what I'm talking about. You you feel the the, the cultural transition and I say all the time Maybe this makes me old. seems like all old people say this, but so there it is. But you look back and you go, the world I grew up in is not the same world I live in now. And I think that's more true in the last 10 years than at other times. And whether you're 75 or whether you're 13, it's still true. Yet while we've gone from, positive, uh, from, from, from a positive stance in our culture to a negative stance... Our status with God hasn't changed at all. Not one bit. Peter writes to those chosen. Chosen by God. This word chosen here is the word elect. And it simply means, in essence, it means we belong. It means we belong. Because that's, that's what it's getting at. That's the impact of being chosen by God. It's a word used of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And it captures God's love. Sometimes when people wrestle with the idea of election or being chosen, we, we, we have this negative sort of uh, experience with it or, or um, uh, a negative association because we feel like it, it, there's alienation involved. But it's actually the exact opposite. The, the, the word chosen and elect is meant to convey love, the, the electing love of God to include people into his love and into his family. Listen to how he describes this to Israel in Deuteronomy 7. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You see, when he talks about choosing Israel to Israel, he emphasizes it's because I love you. That's why I do this. He could have left Israel in their pagan idolatry. He could have left them to squander their lives as slaves in Egypt. He could have just overlooked the fact that they worship Baal. Or that later on as they, as they committed idolatry and they sacrificed their children to Molech on the fire. He could have left them in that darkness. But in his love, he chose them to bring them out of darkness. It's also used of Jesus. Look here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone... Rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. Now, it's being used of Gentile believers in Jesus. People who he's going to tell us later were not a people, but now are the people of God. Chosen. That's why this description here is here at the, at the beginning of this letter. It's here to convey to us the comfort that God gives through choosing us. You already know the context is outsider status to the world. So he wants them to know that what God thinks about them. Hey, you, you may be living in your hometown and people don't recognize you anymore. People, people perhaps were turning their, their heads the other way as they passed them on the street. Perhaps didn't want to sell them things in the market anymore. He wanted them to know hey, you're chosen by God. You're loved by God. You belong to God. He wants them to realize that they might be homeless, but they're not without a family. Christian, you might feel homeless in this life, but you are not without a family because you're chosen by God. In some cultures, the family gives you a house name, like a a nickname that only those in your family call you. Well, the people you love... And those who you belong to, they know that name and they say it. That's what God means when he says to us, you're chosen by me. It means in Jesus, you have a family. God is your father and he wants you at the table. It's not just them, though. It's everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Everyone who turns from sin to follow Jesus. In fact, this is very beautiful. You you remember here the the various provinces that he names here. He's writing to them. They're chosen. Their exiles dispersed. Now look again at the end of the book in chapter 5. Flip back over there to chapter 5. And notice how he ends it in verse 13. He's already said the part that we, we read earlier. And then he says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Babylon is Rome, he's in Rome, and she is the church who's in Rome. The church in Rome, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. They're not alone. Now, no doubt they felt alone when they're being ostracized. No doubt they felt alone when they're in the workroom, when they're they're in the break room at work around around the water or getting a cup of coffee and the conversation's happening and they felt like outsiders. But he says to them, you have a family, They're dispersed abroad. And here in Rome, you have more family. We send you greetings. All chosen in God. And so that includes you and it includes me if you're in Jesus. Do you see that? I hope hope that you can take that into your heart. Whatever questions you've got, sure. But take in your heart the label God gives you. Now, there are three prepositions here to tell us how that new status came to be. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father is the first one. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, he's describing, he's helping us understand how this comes to be. And it certainly means, when he says foreknowledge, it certainly means prior knowledge. But it's much more than knowing something ahead of time. We're talking about God. To know someone in Scripture, especially when it comes to relationships... Is to talk about intimacy. When God says He knows you, He's talking about relational intimacy in knowing you. It's not the it's it's not the same as I, saying I, I'm aware of somebody or I know about them. It's, he's saying I know you. And when he say when he has pre knowledge, it's not that he had mere knowledge of what might happen in time and space. He had a pre-intimacy with everyone he would make, and, and particularly, in this case, those that belong to him in Christ. He chose according to his foreknowledge. It's similar to the way that we say, oh, oh I know him, he's going to like this. In the Old Testament, God told Jeremiah that he knew him before he was formed in his mother's womb. You remember that? And in fact, in, in chapter 1, verse 20, you can see that this is how the word is used of Jesus. Look there in chapter 1, verse 20. Again, of Jesus, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. So there's a really clear verse as to what foreknowledge means here. Jesus was foreknown. So Jesus, you can't read this as Jesus was, uh, God was aware of what Jesus might do in the world. No, Jesus was known in the Trinity before the foundation of the world, but was revealed to us in these last times, he says. So the foreknowledge of God is not saying God knew what would happen ahead of time, so then he chose before time based on what would happen in time on his knowledge. Instead, it's speaking of God's omniscient wisdom and his intention even before time began. Now, this is not just a theological note. You might say, well, here here we are in the theological clouds. But the reason that matters is remember, this is being given to comfort Christians who are living as exiles in their hometown. Where did their relationship with God come from? Where did their status come from? What hope and confidence do they have? Is it because they they chose the Lord? Is it because they're confident that somehow they'll make it to the end? After all, they finished other projects in their life, they've got grit. Is, is that what Christians are supposed to hope in? No. We hope in the confidence that God chose us in Christ before time began based upon his intentions. Acts 2.23, the same word is used and there it's translated as predestination. And it is used there to describe what would happen to Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection was planned by God. It's similar to Romans 8, 29, where it says, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, he also called. Because God foreknew, he predestined, and in his predestination, he calls us in time and space to come to believe on him. So when Peter says that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, he's telling us what we are experiencing in time and space had its origin in God's heart and plan for us before you were ever born. That means it doesn't depend on you. It's not, God's not relying on you to make it to the end to save yourself. Now, he who endures to the end is the one that's going to be saved. But it's all rooted in God. God. It's all resting in God. We will make it to the end because of God. Peter wants to comfort the saints with this truth. You were chosen according to a plan. You're not here by happenstance. You didn't come to this point in your life where you're trusting in Christ because it just happened that way. God has so arranged your life to bring you to faith in Jesus because he loves you. Let me just say, some people are really bothered by the idea of God's election. And I get it. I get I get the things that, that people raise. Uh, I, I myself have had struggles myself over over years and in, in times in my life. It's hard to think about some of the implications of God sovereignly choosing to save some, but let others remain in their sin. I don't pretend to know all the answers to that, so if you ask me at the door, I'm probably gonna tell you I don't know. I have my own questions, right? But we we must just go with what God says. What what do the scriptures teach? And from what the scriptures teach, then try to understand it. Then try to ask our questions. Then then, then try to, to seek the answers that we might have. But to focus on the difficult part of election is really to miss the whole point. When God says we're chosen, it's given to us as security in a negative world. It's a hard doctrine, but it's meant as a comfort. The second preposition he gives here is through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So not only did God plan your salvation, but he brought it to you by the work of the Spirit where he sets you apart to believe in Jesus. Being set apart is the goal of God calling us to Jesus. And the goal of salvation is to be dedicated to God. And the first step of that is the Spirit working in your heart and mind to turn away from sin and turn towards God. So how does God's choice come down in time and space? The Holy Spirit begins to work in your mind and heart. He works in your life. If we had the time, we went through everybody's testimony here, many of us would begin, well, this, this event happened in my life, and it made me question. Or this came about, and I started to say, I wonder about this. Or this event happened in my life, and I say, well, that must be God. Maybe I should go to church. And from there, God arranges things, and you begin to get the word of God. And you begin to hear the gospel about Jesus. And over time, you come to faith. That's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That process is not something you and I do on our own, but it's something God does to us. It comes when the Spirit impresses the truth of Jesus on our minds, and he convicts us of sin in the heart. So if you're here and you're wrestling with Jesus about this, and the truth of Jesus is pressing on you, and the conviction of God about your sin and your life and your, your, what He wants you to do when you hear the call to follow Him, when that's, if that's pulling at you, that is the Spirit of God. And you should respond to Him. You should give in to the Spirit. It's what later He will call new birth in verse 3, and it's what leads to the obedience of a new life in the next line, or the third participle or preposition that He gives us to explain it. Notice He says, "...to be obedient." and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. The sanctifying work of the Spirit applies what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And the Spirit leads us to obedience, and he covers us with the blood of Jesus. That's why, for the Christian, we become, we, we become people in tension with the world. Because when the Spirit comes and brings new birth into our life, that new birth reorients our hearts towards God. And all of a sudden, the things that God had said for us to do or not to do, they become things that we want to do. Even when we fail, we want to please the Lord. That's the Spirit's work. He works to bring about obedience to Jesus and the gospel. And he does this also to cover us with the blood, he says. Being covered with Jesus' blood is another image of being included into God. It's the image from Exodus chapter 24 when the covenant was first ratified with Israel. And you remember the sacrifice was made and the Ten Commandments were read. And Israel was all gathered in a big, huge assembly. And they all in unison said, we will obey the Lord. We accept this covenant. And Moses took the blood out of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it all on the people so that the droplets of blood went out on the people and as they landed on people in their head, on their skin and on their clothing, that visually symbolized you are in the covenant. You belong to God. You're in the marriage relationship with Him. The Spirit takes the blood that Jesus sacrificed on the cross and He spiritually sprinkles it on everyone who comes to Him by by faith so that the blood comes on us and we're included In the relationship with God through that blood. That's what this means. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. For obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So that you would be included in the people of God. Called the chosen. That should encourage you in a world... That discourages you. Now I want you to see one more thing before we close. I want you to notice the Trinity in these verses. Notice according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To be obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The the whole Godhead of the triune God has worked together from eternity past to work in time and space 2,000 years ago at the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus to bring the sprinkling of His blood and the sanctifying work of the Spirit into your life today. The whole eternal plan of God by the triune God all working together for your salvation. You can't mess that up. Jesus will get us home. And so, if you're living as an exile, you should be strengthened. Be strengthened because we're going to go home. We're not homeless, we belong to a kingdom, we belong to a home. Notice how he ends. He says, may grace and, strength, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Isn't it interesting he doesn't just say grace and peace to you, but multiplied. As the hostility of the world goes up, the grace and peace of Jesus comes up with it to match it so that we would be sustained. Church, you should be encouraged by what God says about you. The way the world sees you and is going to speak about you because of Jesus is not true at all of the way God thinks about you. So embrace an outsider status to the world. Be be good with that. Come to terms with it. But take comfort in insider status with God because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you Hallelujah. Amen.